You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. The United States will pursue a free and open Indo-Pacific that promotes our interests and those of our partners and allies. And yet, in the South China Sea, we know that Beijing continues to coerce, to intimidate, and to make claims to the vast majority of the South China Sea. And Beijing's actions continue to undermine the rules-based order and threaten the sovereignty of nations. The United States stands with our allies and partners in the face of these threats. China firmly opposes the deployment of maritime law enforcement forces by the United States in the South China Sea to intervene in regional affairs and disrupt regional peace and stability. That's Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesman Wang Wenbin. He's responding to U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris's statement in Singapore during her Southeast Asia trip. Welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. I'm Chad Bray from the South China Morning Post, coming to you from Times Square in Hong Kong. We're going to hear more of what Kamala Harris had to say now that she's landed in Vietnam in just a minute. But elsewhere in the region, we're seeing a lot of naval activity. Earlier this week, we had Chinese Navy ships doing live ammunition training not too far from the island of Guam, which has not been a very subtle message for the Navy ships of India, Japan, Australia, and the United States, which started their own exercises near Guam yesterday. And remember how we spoke about the British aircraft carrier, the HMS Queen Elizabeth? Well, it's been joined by two American aircraft carriers. Together, they possess more firepower than the entire fleets of most countries. And they were conducting flight operations in the waters around Okinawa. That's around 450 miles northeast of Taiwan. Meanwhile, off the coast of Taiwan, we saw reports of the POA demonstrating a large civilian cargo ship that was transporting troops, weapons, and supplies in anticipation of a potential beach landing. In the second half of the show, we'll hear some analysis from India about its role in an informal military alliance known as the Quad, as well as its changing strategic outlook on Afghanistan and the disputed border it shares with China. It's full steam ahead right across the Indo-Pacific, so let's set sail. It's exciting and new. Bhavan Pragas joins us. Bhavan, thanks for joining us. We've just seen the first uh, U.S. vice president to visit Vietnam since really the end of the Vietnam War. And, and Kamala Harris gave a speech just a few minutes ago in Hanoi. Does anything stand out for you? So it was, it was a five-day trip that started in Singapore. And in, on Tuesday, she went to Vietnam. Really, this trip was about the U.S. engaging two countries that are not formal treaty allies, but are nonetheless seen as very important for America's Asia policy. With Singapore, the U.S. has strong military-to-military ties. It has literal combat ships that rotate out of uh, Changi Naval Base. So when she was in Singapore, Kamala Harris made a, a visit to the, to the Naval Base uh, where she spoke to uh, sailors on board one of the literal combat ships. So the Singapore leg of her trip really signifies the importance that Singapore plays in terms of American military's forward posture in Asia. In Vietnam too, they are, as we have heard from from her just now uh, in a press conference, you know they they view the relationship as key to what they are trying to do in the region, the Biden administration's Indo-Pacific uh, engagement policy. During her trip, she pitched having the relationship with Hanoi to be upgraded to 
what they call a strategic partnership. Right now, it's a comprehensive partnership. Barack Obama signed that in 2013. It seems unlikely to me that the Vietnamese will agree to any kind of upgrade at the moment. And that has to do with how they continue to want to hedge with China and keep ties on a on an even keel, even as they have some differences over what's happening in the South China Sea. And you've been, you know, following her tour around the region uh, pretty closely. And a lot of the media coverage is focused on some remarks she made about Beijing, saying they were coercing and intimidating others in the South China Sea. But your latest story also mentions how the U.S. is disinterested in a zero-sum mentality. So can you unpack this for us? I think that really speaks to what Southeast Asian leaders have repeatedly said that they do not want to be caught, you know, in the superpower rivalry. They do not want either of the superpowers to tell them to pick sides. For example, the Singaporean Prime Minister Lee Sen Lung has said that repeatedly last year. You hear that from the Indonesians, the Malaysians and, you know, the rest of them. In really underscoring this in her remarks in Singapore, I think Kamala Harris is sending a signal that the US is well aware of the sentiment in Southeast Asia regarding this. And, you know, other principals who have passed through have also made this uh, distinction. Lloyd Austin, the Defence Secretary when he was here in July, also said that America is just nurturing and, and cultivating the ties that it already has. It is not asking anything more from from its friends in the region, right? They're certainly not asking countries to abandon their important economic ties with China, right? But at the same time, the US has made it clear that if the regional countries require a strong voice to back them up on issues like the South China Sea, then the US is ready to play that part. Yeah, we, we, you've already heard China react to Harris's uh, speech. How have we seen countries in Southeast Asia respond? Are they receptive to the U.S. growing presence in the region? I mean, certainly we, we're seeing a lot of ships uh, flowing around the South China Sea right now. I mean, among countries like Vietnam and Singapore, you'll see a kind of a warm reception. Uh, these countries are quite happy to have the U.S. presence in the region, right, uh, as a counterbalance to Chinese assertions. The Singaporean Prime Minister went as far as to say that the U.S. has played the role of guarantor of security in Asia for the last seven decades. I mean, that's quite a strong statement. And I don't think the Singaporeans are going to apologize for their strong relationship with the Americans. You know, like with other countries in the region, the U.S. is an important exporter of military arms. So you, you want to make sure that your ties with Washington are, are strong. At the same time, I think these countries will also not want the U.S. to be overplaying their hand. China, for example, is very sensitive about joint exercises in the South China Sea. While the regional countries have had some of these exercises in, in these disputed waters, I think they will want to make sure that you know it's even-handed, you don't do too many of them, and it does not seem like you're goading China. Yeah, and at the same time, you know, while Harris was in Vietnam, she announced that America would be donating uh, 1 million Pfizer vaccines to the Vietnamese. I am delighted to announce that the United States is donating an additional 1 million Pfizer vaccines to Vietnam. I should add that all of these deliveries are, in fact, donations, free of charge, with no strings attached. Because for us, this is about saving lives, period. 
But just the day before, China delivered 200,000 vaccines to Vietnam, and they're offering 2 million more doses. We're seeing, you know, vaccine diplomacy happening here in the works now. And is it having a success? Is, is Vietnam sort of leaning one way or the other, Beijing or Washington? I mean, Vietnam has 98 million people, right? So they are going to take all the help that they can get, right? They have one of the lowest vaccination rates in Asia. Daily caseload is near record high. So... Whether it's from the US or China, I think at the moment, Vietnam's rulers are going to say, please uh, help us, you know, we will accept whatever help we can get. In this case, the superpower rivalry or the one-upmanship is in favour of the countries in the region. And at the same time, we've had a lot of recent chaos in, in Afghanistan with China and other governments sort of drawing parallels to what happened in Vietnam in, in 1975 when the U.S. pulled out of Vietnam and ended the Vietnam War. But Harris has been focusing on the present. And so how have these recent developments in Afghanistan affected the American relationship with Vietnam and the rest of Southeast Asia? Is, is China capitalizing in the region right now because they're able to say, look at what has happened when the U.S. leaves? Yeah, I mean, much of that rhetoric is coming from China. Our contributors in Vietnam, as they were reporting this story, you know, put this question to some foreign policy experts in their country. And generally, the sentiment is that, you know, just comparing apples and oranges, Vietnam does not see any kind of parallel between what's happening now in Afghanistan and its current relationship with the U.S. I mean, they are clear-eyed about why they are going in with the, with the Americans. You know, you need them for strategic reasons. But at the same time... You, Countries in decolonized Asia know very well that ultimately you need to stand on your own feet. So don't forget that, you know, in Vietnam, they call the Vietnam War the American War. So the lessons of the past have not been forgotten in Vietnam and the rest of the region. With this uh, visit to Vietnam, this visit to Singapore, not visiting two treaty partners in Thailand and the Philippines, the big question here is, is what did the U.S. achieve or hope to achieve with this? You know, the first eight months of the Biden administration, they have had to deal with a lot of complaints from Southeast Asia, from the diplomatic community in the region, that the officials seem to have deprioritized the region. What we have seen in response from the administration is a flurry of trips, right? We have seen Wendy Sherman visiting the region earlier in the year, and then the defense secretary visited uh, a few countries Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the American envoy to the UN, visited Bangkok recently as well. So what the Biden administration is showing, I think, with this visit from Kamala Harris is that they are totally cognizant of the fact that showing up matters for the Southeast Asians. And what the governments in the region will be looking out for next is whether the president himself shows up if there is an in-person meeting of the ASEAN bloc later this year in Brunei. And that's where, you know, usually the most of the world leaders uh, show up from the Russian prime minister to India, China, Li Keqiang usually shows up. And the ASEAN bloc usually prefers that the American president is there. Of course, we know Trump skipped it several times, but there is hope that uh, this democratic administration will show greater interest in Southeast Asia. And just this week, as part of the trip, the U.S. announced it had signed a new 99-year lease on a new embassy in Hanoi. 
all week long, I think we've been seeing iconic images from the fall of Saigon and the evacuation of the U.S. embassy at the end of the Vietnam War. So how symbolic is it that the U.S. is, you know, investing in Vietnam and establishing a new embassy there? I think it's well and good for the U.S. to be sinking its roots in Vietnam after re-establishing ties, you know, in, in 1995. But I don't think China will be too worried. You know, it's got really entrenched economic ties in all 10 of the ASEAN member states. It will be looking to strengthen those ties because that's the kind of linchpin that will help it remain a dominant economic and trade force in Southeast Asia. Right now, the U.S. is trying to reassert itself after the four years of the Trump administration where it kind of ceded ground to China. But it's really China's game to lose in Southeast Asia at the moment. Yeah, and this is, you know, sort of the beginnings of this podcast were about the tariff war and how we saw so many industries move investment from China to places like Vietnam to, uh, you know, other parts of Southeast Asia. Yeah, so it's, it's also not a zero-sum game when it comes to trade. So, for example, during the tariff war, there were businesses that moved to Vietnam. At the same time, there are companies and factories in Southeast Asia that are part of the supply chain that, you know, that emanates from China. So it's all interlinked. And while the U.S. is trying very hard to assert itself economically, the kind of links that have been built over the years, over the last two decades between China and the region is hard to penetrate and displace. Yeah, this is certainly something that we'll continue talking about on this podcast in the future. Bhavan, thanks for joining us again. Thank you. Hey, this is Jasmine, one of the podcast producers at SEMP. Don't forget to check out our latest episode of Inside China. It's all about China's handling of COVID and the Delta variant. You're going to hear the latest news on the Wuhan lab leak theory and what scientists from the WHO want to happen next in the investigation into the origins of COVID. You also hear how China's zero-tolerance strategy has sent shockwaves through the global supply chain and why it might affect your Christmas shopping plans. And did you know that China is partnering with America to develop an mRNA vaccine? That's all on this week's Inside China. Kanal Prohit is an independent journalist based in Mumbai and is a regular contributor to the South China Morning Post. Hello, Kanal. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Chad. Thank you so much for having me here. I want to start with four words from the headline from your latest story on SCMP.com. India watches Afghanistan nervously. There's been much discussion of the security implications of the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan for the likes of China and Iran. But what's the perspective from India? I mean, so this, so there is, you know, as the headline very correctly pointed it out, there is there is um, a sense of anxiety. There is a sense of nervousness about what this transition is going to mean. Uh, you know, as as is the case in in so many countries. I mean, there is there is one part which which focuses on. Uh, you know, the implications of, of, of human rights. Uh, there are concerns about, you know, the humanitarian crisis that it's going to trigger. Uh, and India being so close to Afghanistan, we've already seen that, uh, you know, there are there are refugees who are, who are waiting to sort of uh, cross borders and come here and find a safe haven in India. Uh, so we're dealing with those consequences. But uh, from the geopolitical aspect as well, I mean, you know, uh, it, it does seem like it will be an interesting uh, time for the subcontinent because... India, I mean, you know, uh, you know, if you remember, India has already burnt its fingers with the Taliban in the past. Uh, you know, the five-year tenure that the Taliban had 
in Afghanistan was was one where India firstly refused to acknowledge the Taliban. Uh, you know, it refused to acknowledge the the, the government there. Uh, but what what also happened was that was a period which was also marked by um, you know terrorism, especially in in the area of Jammu and Kashmir in India. And Indian establishment has all has always believed that Afghanistan was providing a safe haven to a lot of those terrorists who could who could then cross over and come into you know Jammu and Kashmir. Uh, if if you if you if you recall, India and Afghanistan do share a small border, but but that part of of the border falls into uh, you know the the territory which is administered and occupied by Pakistan, as the Indian establishment likes to call it. Um, so so there is always that fear that that could happen again. The other aspect is that, uh, you know, in 1999, an Indian Airlines, um, you know, aircraft was hijacked and brought to Kandahar. And that was when the Taliban was in power. And the Taliban refused to, you know, assist the Indian establishment in, in taking, um, you know, some sort of counterterrorism measures to, to, to deal with that situation. And as a result of which, India had to then let go of, of three very dreaded terrorists from Indian jails. So, you know, in the context of all of this, India is obviously going to be very nervous about what this means. Because now remember, Taliban has said that it won't allow any terrorist groups to launch attacks against any other country from its soil. Uh, it said this, you know, as, as a means to sort of gain more recognition and legitimacy. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it won't, it won't you know, allow terror groups to create infrastructure or to create even training camps which the Indian establishment believes that the Afghanistan regime will now allow. You know, they might allow spaces where these terror groups could could regather, could recoup, and then sort of head back, uh, you know, to areas like the Jammu and Kashmir region. So this 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 is definitely a, a massive concern for the establishment. But there's, there are also a couple of other, con, you know, uh, geopolitical factors here in play. One is, you know, what, what, what this does to the subcontinent is that it also emboldens India's rival in Pakistan. Um, Pakistan suddenly is, is a much more stronger state in the region. Uh, it now enjoys much more clout in Afghanistan as well. So, so that's an aspect that India is again, you know, sort of on the tenterhooks about. The third aspect, and I feel like this will be possibly the most relevant for this conversation at this point, is that uh, an Afghanistan un under the Taliban also gives China a lot of space to grow and to expand in, in that region. So you know these are some of the these are some of the um, uh, these are some of the fallouts and these are some of the implications that New Delhi is constantly worried about, and it remains to be seen whether any of these clear up in the next few weeks or a few months. Kano, I, I want to come back and, and and sort of talk about you know what you're hearing from your contacts. What what's the feeling out there in India right now about? China's a growing relationship with the Taliban. There, there's a lot of question about whether or not they're going to recognize the government. And, and also, would, would India recognize the Taliban government? Chad, so right. I mean, uh, the Indian policy towards the Taliban in the last couple of years, you know, as it, as it became clearer and clearer that the Taliban would be a major stakeholder in the peace process, so as to say, ever since, uh, you know, the U.S. President Donald Trump announced that he wanted to uh, pursue a withdrawal very, very shortly. India has has you know been been on the fence about you know whether it wants to engage with a group that it it believes has in the past destabilized and you know hurt Indian interests Im immensely, and also with a group that is seen to be very close with its rival Pakistan. So you know there is there is that sense of uh, you know nervousness about whether we should be even engaging with with them. 
that's one aspect. And, and what that has done, what that reluctance has done, is that at this process, at, at this point, I'm sorry, India is is really out of the game when it comes to you know the the kind the parties that are engaging with the Taliban. So if 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 you was recall in the last few weeks the Talibani delegations have visited places like you know China they've they've engaged with Russia um, they've even engaged with Iran with Pakistan but but there's little mention of India there uh, there are no delegations coming to New Delhi um, there are some reports which claim that there were some back channel talks happening between. The Indian government and the Taliban, but the Indian government, you know, is not keen on on officially confirming those talks. So what this has done is that even when it comes to the question of recognizing whether the Taliban, uh, you know, when it does sort of form its government, um, India is again undecided because it 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 much rather see what the rest of the world is doing, especially the Western democracies, uh, when it comes to engaging or when it comes to uh, recognizing whether it is a legitimate state. At this point, though, Chad, I think I think in the Indian establishment is just waiting to see which way the Taliban, you know, finally decides to walk. Um, you know, it's it's not really trusting its words. In fact, just yesterday, General Bipin Rawat said that uh, India doesn't believe that the Taliban has changed. Uh, you know, it, it believes that it's the same Taliban from 20 years. Uh, he may he may not have have said exactly in what way, but I think I think there are enough indications to you know all of us in 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 this game that India doesn't really think that there is there is going to be a very different version of the Taliban playing out. So I don't I don't see India recognizing the Taliban very very soon. And uh, you know at the at the same time of, of all of this happening, the U.S. pulling out of Afghanistan. Um, you know, listeners of this podcast are quite familiar with the strategic rivalry, you know, between India and China, particularly in the Himalayas, and the brutal confrontations that have happened uh, in the last year. So I, I wanted to ask you about what's the status right now in, in the region? You know, how tense is it? Is it is it quiet or is this something where everyone's, you know, still on edge, particularly as we have this power vacuum forming in Afghanistan? Right. So from the Indian perspective, especially, Chad, I mean, as you mentioned, the withdrawal was a huge blow. Uh, you know, it's it's not as if India India did not expect the withdrawal at all. I think I think the Indian government was made to believe by the U.S. that the U.S. will will not give up so easily. Uh, you know, so if 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 you was recall, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken was in New Delhi just a few weeks before the withdrawal happened, and 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 my sources had told me at that point that the visit was basically to reassure New Delhi that you know that we're not going to let Afghanistan you know sort of walk away uh, into into the hands of Taliban. We will be there. We will ensure that the Afghan government can can you know put up a good fight against the Taliban. Uh, three weeks into that meeting, you know, we see that the Taliban has entered the presidential palace in Kabul. Right? So that kind of tells you how the U.S. strategy is unraveled. But the other aspect of it is is just the U.S. You know, sort of engagement with its own partners when it comes to Taliban and when it comes to the question of, of the Afghanistan withdrawal. Uh, those assurances, you know, India clearly felt a bit shortchanged when when it saw what happened on August fifteenth in, in Kabul. But the other part of it is also that uh, I think somewhere the Indian government and the Indian establishment has felt that the U.S. did not fully factor in, uh, you know, the security implications of of a Taliban ruled Afghanistan for in India. Um, the, the U.S. possibly thought of, you know, its own priorities. Uh, the U.S. The U.S. now feels that it doesn't need boots on the ground to prevent terror attacks hap- 
happening in happening in America. But let's not forget that uh, terror is is not the only is 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 not uh, you know a threat exclusively for the American interests. Terror, you know, as the Indian subcontinent knows terror much before Americans did. Uh, you know, we've known of terror attacks since the 70s. So, if not if not earlier, that is. So, you know, I think what the U.S. has done is 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 in some ways it's it's signaled to partners like India that that when it comes to you know comes to engagements or campaigns like this, the U.S. interests will always come first. And that's extremely disconcerting for an India, right? When it's when it's watching, uh, you know, the fact that China is growing extremely assertive in the region. It's it's growing bigger than it than it was, uh, and then you have a U.S. which is claiming to be, you know, sort of assisting India in taking China on. But when it comes to the real deal, the U.S. doesn't, you know, hesitate to to pull back its own on forces. So. What's going to happen in Afghanistan again is is an aspect that you know India is looking at, especially in terms of the vacuum. Uh, there are two aspects to you know the the expansion of Chinese presence in Afghanistan. One is that you know as you said, the vacuum created by the U.S. withdrawal will mean that there are there are no bigger players at at this point you know which are involved in Afghanistan and engaged with the Taliban. Uh, China. Uh, one senses can can feel that absence and and might might not be averse to. You know, engaging with the Taliban if its own interests are taken care of. The other aspect is that uh, for China, Afghanistan is also important because it's a very important gateway to to Central Asia. Uh, you know, it, it is also important for its BRI and and for its CPEC, which is the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. So these are also interests that uh, China has in mind when it looks at Afghanistan. If the Chinese presence does manage to sustain. And expand in Afghanistan, that could be extremely worrying for in India because it, in some ways, it signals an, an encirclement, you know, of its of its subcontinental um, linkages. So you know, you have China on the border, on the northern border, then you have Pakistan, and then you have again, you know, a Chinese presence in Afghanistan, uh, and that doesn't all go well for Indian interests. And, and I wanted to turn back to sort of the Himalayan border. We, we we've had uh, seen India pour a lot of money, manpower, and and even concrete into their side of the Indian-Chinese uh, border of the, uh, the summer. And so what's the plan there? Do you, know, do, do you have a sense from your contacts sort of what India's strategy is? When we saw the border standoff first start in May last year, it was something that you know, people thought was, was nothing extraordinary because you know, there are these, these clashes that constantly happen uh, between Indian and Chinese forces. The reason for that is is that the border is not marked, and hence, you know, there are differences in the way the two sides perceive the border. That was not new, but then what followed that has taken Indians and the Indian government by such surprise, because it, you know, in in the Indian context, you know, we've we've considered China as a rival in some ways, but it's also been a rival where you know we've we've tried to mend fences and we've tried to establish peace with it. Um, so when the when the clash happened in June last year, a lot of Indians were taken by surprise at at the ferocity and and at the fact that such a clash, such a violent clash, could still happen with the Chinese on the border. What that clash has done, Chad, is now bring about a fundamental, a paradigm shift in the way India looks at China. India doesn't look at China as as a rival. It can it can possibly. Uh, negotiate with and it can possibly tame in some ways, if that's the right word. It now looks at China as a rival which can't be trusted. Uh, 
and this this is really the fundamental change that last year's clash in the Galwan Valley has brought about, which is why you know the Indian establishment has for long believed, and it's 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 something that I find extremely amusing. But you know the Indian establishment had its reasons for it. In the last 20, 30 years or so, the Indian establishment has believed that we should not be creating too much of infrastructure along the border with China. And the reason for that is that if there is a war to be fought with China, uh, the the enemy will find it extremely difficult to, to navigate those hilly terrains if there is no infrastructure. But if you build roads there, the enemy will find it very easy to then, you know, advance into Indian territory. That is now changing. You know, that is now completely being sort of, you know, disbanded. That logic is being disbanded. And now India is realizing that it's made a mistake in keeping these areas remote and unconnected and underconnected. So what it's doing is it's, it's 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 going the whole hog. It's creating highways, it's creating small little bridges, you know, which are crucial to cross over smaller tributaries and rivers. Um, it's it's also looking at creating airstrips and you know landing helicopter landing pads because it now realizes that uh, uh, a war or a military conflict with China is actually not as far away as as the Indian establishment had always presumed it was. Uh, And to take that ahead, uh, for a very long time now, the Indian establishment has has thought of it as a bit of a nightmare to have a two-front war, uh, you know, which is one front with Pakistan and the other front with China. And, you know, in the last 20 years or so, when Indian and Chinese ties did improve, the prospects of that two-front war were diminishing. Except now, suddenly we're seeing that the prospects seem extremely real again. And that has unnerved the Indian establishment a lot. So uh, I feel like the Indian government is now looking at, you know, longer-term strategies to keep uh, to keep a very, very close eye on what happens along the line of actual control with China. It's not going to take that, that front easily ever again. And I want to turn to one country that we, we rarely hear about when we, we talk about the China-India relationship, and that's Nepal. And you've been tracking some interesting developments there that relate to both India and China. So could you tell us a little bit about what you found, what your reporting's uncovered? Right. So, Chad, I mean, um, the India-Nepal relationship has, has gone through its own share of uh, turmoil, if I can call it that, because, um, you know, ever since the 2015 blockade, the, the economic blockade that in some ways was supported by, by New Delhi, um, and the blockage resulted in, you know, supplies of essentials, supplies of groceries, of food grains, all of that being blocked, uh, you know, from, from entering Nepal. Ever since that blockade, the Indian and the Nepali relationship has has really suffered uh, setback after setback. Uh, and what has only complicated matters is the fact that uh, the Nepali-Chinese relationship has really taken off. Um, you know, so the, the, Indian, the Indian establishment has a, has a has a view that Nepal often tries to play the Chinese card, um, and you know sort of tries to extract benefits out of India and China, both uh, you know by sort of by by playing one against the other. But I've genuinely felt that this approach has not been um, you know an extremely sound one, and has been counterproductive, Chad, because uh, all of my connections in Nepal, you know, and all of the insights that I've got in speaking to people there, makes me believe that there is definitely a sense of anger against a country like India for the blockade and, you know, for just assuming these kinds of things that that a country like Nepal will not have its own agency in dealing with other powers. 
and that a country like Nepal must always be in some way subservient to to India, just because it's the bigger power in the region. So what it has done is that you know it's created that anger in 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 people. That anger has been exploited by politicians in in sort of tapping the anti-Indian sentiment. Uh, and in the last couple of years or so, we've also seen you know the political establishment led by the former Prime Minister K P Sharma Oli himself. Uh, tapping into this Indian uh, sentiment, uh, this anti-Indian sentiment constantly. Um, at some point last year, he called it the Indian virus. He said, you know, the Indian virus is, has entered Nepal. Uh, and that riled many people in New Delhi. So, um, thankfully for New Delhi, we've we've had a change of guard in Nepal. We have a new Prime Minister in Prime Minister Sher Bahadur Dioba. And uh, Prime Minister Dioba has, has, you know, an old establishment man, He's known to, you know, be putting foreign policy at the forefront of his his governance, and he's known to have good ties with India as well as with China. Uh, in fact, the, the Global Times, when it reported on on him becoming the prime minister, called him the pro-India leader. So, so you see the apprehensions that it's also uh, eliciting in 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 Beijing about about him. But I believe that at least for the short term now, India and Nepal have you know their ties. Um, back on track in some form or the other. But again, a lot depends on how India looks at, uh, you know, Chinese engagement with Nepal, because um, India often has its eyebrows raised whenever it sees China making an inroad into any of its neighbors. Um, and that, you know, that attitude has often hurt its interests, especially in countries like Nepal and Bangladesh, you know, where Chinese engagement has grown over the last few years. So if if it, you know, as, as a lot of people in the establishment tell me, if we stick to what we can do for Nepal rather than what Nepal is doing with China, our interests will be much better served uh, than they are at this point. So as we draw to a close, I, I wanted to uh, sort of recap with you a little bit about the, the China-India relationship right now. Last year in November, we had 43 Chinese apps that were banned by uh, the Indian government. I'm curious within that, you know, is, is there any sense of a, a softening or, or improving relationship or does it remain chilly? What has happened on that front is that ever since that ban was imposed, we saw many more bans also happening on on Chinese apps. We've also seen some sort of, uh, you know, roadblocks when it comes to Chinese investment in the Indian economy. We've seen that the Indian government is now asking for much more verification and is, is looking at lengthy procedures basically making it tough for the Chinese to then enter the Indian economic uh, market. Along with that, what has happened is is, is because, because the standoff, which started in May last year, is still not resolved and we're, we're entering September now. There is still no sign of a complete resolution to the standoff. What has happened is that the anti-Chinese sentiment among people has remained in some ways. Um, and there was a form of nationalism that... Till, till some time ago used to only be directed against Pakistan. You know, it's India's arch rival. And now that nationalism is, is also being directed against China. Uh, so I, I suspect that while, you know, people might have tried to put, you know, behind the, the economic blockade or the economic boycott of Chinese products at their, their end, the government can't be seen to be subscribing to that because the populist thing to do is, is to continue... Um, you know, sort of blocking Chinese entry into the Indian market. So I don't, I don't suspect that the Indian government would relent on that front. Um, in fact, uh, just to update the listeners as well, out of the six places where Indian and Chinese forces 
had entered into a standoff, you know, and then sort of came eyeball to eyeball. We've managed to resolve the standoff in four of those six places, but two of those standoffs continue. So we still have a situation where where Indian and Chinese troops are still, um, you know, sort of standing eyeball to eyeball, looking down at each other uh, with guns, with heavy art- artillery, with with uh, with rockets as well lined up. So unless unless all of that gets sorted out, I don't see economic ties ties also improving at least on a bilateral level. Um, we had seen, you know, when when the standoff did take place, we saw that even among people, you know, people sort of used to use on used to upload photos on social media saying that they are banning or they are blocking the use of certain Chinese goods. You know, they're they're not going to be buying Chinese manufactured items. But you know, a year down the line, that sentiment is is now slowly going away, and people are accepting the fact that it's not very easy to block. Chinese items in in the Indian market. So while that happens, unless unless things improve bilaterally, I don't see the Indian government really paying heed to it and and you know lifting the ban. Kanal, thanks so much for joining us. It's been very informative. What do you need to know about China's one billion internet users? What are they using it for? Who's making money from it? Who are the new players? And what's the forecast for China's tech IPOs and startups? SCMP Research presents. The China Internet Report 2021. Expert analysis and forecasts on e-commerce, fintech, market growth, and industry trends. Download your free copy at sc.mp/cir, or come to scmp.com and search for the China Internet Report 2021 online this Monday. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening to the China Geopolitics podcast. Thanks for sharing and recommending us. Keep up to date with everything that's happening in the world via scmp.com or follow us on Twitter at scmp economy for the political economy team. I'm at Chad Bray. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a fortnight. Until then, stay safe, get your vaccine, and keep your mask on. Aloha for now. <laughs>